Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organisation sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others and the planet. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I'm so honoured to have on this episode Jeff Sutherland. Jeff is one of the creators of Scrum and a co-writer of the Agile Manifesto. Jeff, throughout his career, has been a leading thinker, author, trainer, and coach on culture and organizational performance. Jeff has helped many of the largest organizations in our world implement Agile and Scrum to enable them to innovate and scale rapidly. Let's get into the episode. I'm very honored to have with me today, Jeff Sutherland. Jeff Sutherland has been a major influence in my career, and he's the developer of Scrum which has been so amazing for our world. A key player in the Agile Manifesto has written many amazing books. Um, there's Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time, many other books to really help. And Jeff, I just really appreciate your time today. I know it's so valuable. Glad to be here. I'm happy to talk with you. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff, I've had the fortunate opportunity to get trained by you and I've read a lot of what you've written and seen a lot of your talks and it in a nutshell it seems to me that you've spent a lot of your career focusing on how to inspire and empower people and create high performance teams to achieve greater outcomes for greater causes where did this all start for you Jeff like where where was that first team that triggered some inspiration for you on this that teams can achieve great things well, I mean, if you go way back, when I was eight years old, I saw a picture of cadets on the parade field at West Point, and I told my parents, I'm, I'm going to West Point. They thought I was crazy. Uh, but sure enough, I got there. And as I'm entering, you know, when you, when, when you get there, it's like Marine boot camp training, you know, they... Uh, I'm actually standing, I've, I've got my, I've had my hair cut, my head has been shaved, <laughs> I'm standing there in a t-shirt with my duffel bag, I'm in line to get the, my medical exam in the gym, and beside me, the U.S. Olympic team in gymnastics is working out, so I must have been standing in line for half an hour watching these unbelievable, amazing, like superhuman exercises. And, uh, and so when I, when I got in my first year, I joined the Olympic team because the Olympic coach was running the, the army gym team and all his assistance coaches were on the Olympic team and they were working out right with us. And that taught me how you need to practice every day to up your game. And no matter how good you are, you're not there yet. And you're constantly pushing the envelope for years. And, and at the same time, I'm being trained at all the great military leaders of the past. And West Point is, is one of the, maybe the uh, greatest leadership training programs on the planet. Uh, and so it's all about building great teams, right? It's all about building great teams. What does it take? How do you motivate people? How do you practice? How do you improve? And in my last year there, I 
Um, on the one hand, I started up a championship ski team. Uh, at the same time, I was responsible for my companies marching on the parade field. I turned them into the best, guy, the best marching company that West Point has ever seen. They were actually asked to bury General MacArthur. Our most famous graduate died. They said, hey, he, he wanted cadets behind his casket as they're marching to lay him to rest. And so we need the best marching company ever. And that was my company. So this, the way I did it was to make work visible after every parade so that everybody could see what, what went on, what went wrong, what's the priority of things to fix. And that caused the, the, the teams to self-organize. Within three months, they went from one of the worst to one of the best marching companies on the planet. And that was the beginning of what today we know as Scrum. Making work visible, self-organization, uh, really uh, moving from low performance to extreme performance in a very short time. Well, what a mel melting point that was for you. You know, Absolutely. Olympic coach that you saw, then you ended up being trained by that Olympic coach. Also, then you end up taking that to an experience with a team, low performing marching team. Yeah. It was like a trigger point in your life. Absolutely. It's transformative. Wow. Jeff, where did you go from there? What was the next big part in well, your evolution at the uh at the time of graduation at that time the uh 10 of the class would go into the air force so the air force was recruiting and i told them if they made me a fighter pilot i'd go in the air force because i was interested in flying and so they 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 did that and i joined the air force so uh after a year of pilot training i i was in a f4 squadron uh, I wound up over in Vietnam, uh, flying 100 missions over North Vietnam. And so everything about flying fighter aircraft is all about very quick decisions, adapting very quickly, uh, having uh, processes and procedures and checklists and emergency practices in order to stay alive. And when you, when you were flying over North Vietnam, which was the most heavily defended airspace in the history of aerial warfare, that amplified that need to inspect and adapt. Uh, as soon as you cross the border, you had to throw away your plan and, and respond to change. So the whole agile thing uh, for a fighter pilot, it's burned into muscle memory, okay, because if you don't react quickly, you're dead. Jeff, you know, on that, Jeff, this is close to me. My wife's grandfather is still alive. He was in the bombers flying over France in the yeah. Second World War. Half his mates came back. I know that half, it was about half yeah. your mates came back too. Like that must have been a pivotal part of life in that Absolutely. regard. Yeah, and I was training a lot of them and I trained them on how to go into uh the combat area and make sure they're evading constantly uh but some of them would just fly you know straight and level to the target and and they would get shot down even though i told them not to do that you know people would just it's the same thing in scrum you know i tell i tell people i tell companies you should do this you know <laughs> because what you're doing is not working 
and then they, they don't follow the advice, and then they crash and burn, just like my mates over North Vietnam. So, Jeff, this was a question I was going to ask you later on in the presentation, but I think it's a good time now to talk on it. In the training you did with me, that was amazing. You spoke a lot about just get the skills of the basics, follow the process. What is it that you think stops people doing that? Just get that basic. I've heard of the concept of shuhari. What stops yeah. people following shuhari? And do you mind just describing? Well, the, the shuhari is in the martial arts. I trained in Aikido for many years, but it, it works in any of the martial arts. And the shoe state, you're going to do exactly what the sensei says. Okay, so the karate master is going to say, do this move. And then if you don't do it, he's going to whack you. So you're going to learn to do that move. And, and you're not going to get creative until you know how to do the basics. But in today's world, people think, I mean, they have no concept of Olympic training, which is where my background was. They have no idea how the level of discipline and focus, because they've never had a mentor to guide them who was so obviously great they would follow, okay? Because those Olympic coaches, they tell me to do something, then they would get up and do it perfectly. And they would say, see, like that, okay? So they've had no training in, in excellence. And so they think they can do anything and that it's gonna work. And that's, that absolutely is not true. So I've seen scrum teams just fumble and stall for a year or more. It's, it's like totally unnecessary. You know, if they just follow the basics we taught them in the course, within a few sprints, they're gonna be doing a lot better. But no, oh, oh, we, we wanna we do it our way. We wanna make up our own way, okay? Well, they have no idea how hard it is to get something really work. It's like, it's like computer languages. How many computer languages are there? Thousands. How many actually are used? Broadly, a handful, right? Because to get a computer language to work, it has to be tested on thousands of systems with millions of developers. And there has to be a, a collective knowledge and training base to enable the systems to be built in that environment. And somebody in some little company says, oh, I'm just gonna make up my own computer language for this program I'm writing for my customer. Okay, how's that gonna work? Well, the customer's gonna get it, there's gonna be a bug and nobody can fix it. Not only that, it's gonna be slow because it takes thousands of systems and decades to get high performance for a language environment. But people are like, I'm just gonna do my own thing and, and it's gonna be okay if everybody else has to feel the pain, right? They have no concept of actually helping people their own team members, their customers, focused on helping them to be better. And, uh, and I, was, I was just talking with the University of Utah around noon, a professor, he wanted to know, what should we tell the students? <laughs> they want to know, what should they do in their careers? 
they need to figure out what they can really get passionate about. Then they need to figure out what is their talent that they can connect with that passion. And then third, they have to figure out how they can be of service to others, how they can really help a large number of people. And we have a lot of people on these scrum teams, the only service is to themselves by doing whatever they want, no matter what happens to the team or the customer, right? That is the root of malfunction. That is the root of scrum failure. And we know that 58% of scrum teams fail because they have developers and managers and leaders who say it's okay for them to stumble. Uh, this is one of the reasons I know you have a, some lean background. This is yeah. one of the things I really like about working with the lean people, particularly the Japanese, because they have a strong, uh, one of their values is respect for people. So they say, okay, if you have a workflow in a company that's not working and you don't fix it, you're making people suffer. That's disrespect for people. So all these scrum teams that are not working, they're making their, their customers suffer. They're making their company suffer. They're making their team members suffer. And it's all about because it's service to self and not service to others. Okay. Yeah. And so that is the training that needs to be made for the average person. Doesn't matter what they're doing. Doesn't matter what company doesn't matter whether a student or a professional, how are they actually going to make a contribution to help others and not just be trying to self-serve and causing pain for others? That's disrespect for people. That's a violation of the scrum values. So, you know, all of this is really pretty basic when you get down to it. People need to start watching out for each other, helping each other, building great products, getting the customers really excited, getting them really happy. And that needs to be their like total focus, not that, playing the latest tool that they might think is interesting. You know, I mean, yeah, this is, this is the problem. And in, in martial arts, going back to the martial arts, you're not allowed to mess around. The karate master will whack you. Okay. And when you get, skilled enough so you've gone up the belts maybe not even until you have a first degree black belt then the sensei says okay now you can experiment and develop your own style okay now that you've mastered the basics now you can then you're in the ha state you can start to experiment and uh and and the restate is where you actually transcend the process you actually you know, it's an illusion. The people that are in the restate or in the shoe state think they can go to the ha state and do anything they want. But actually, uh, in the restate, you become the process. And a good example, there's still videos on the internet of the founder of Aikido showing how we can have multiple people attack them and then all of it, they all go down, okay? <laughs> and it's because his, the, 
the core of his energy is so strong, he can just wave his hand without even touching people and they'll go down. So he has gone beyond the need to actually grab somebody's arm and do anything, okay? So that's what the restate is. You're so good that you're beyond the, you're, you're, it's just like those Olympic gymnasts. They, when you, they look superhuman. It looks like no human could ever do that, okay? So that's what the restate is. But you get a lot of, you know, scrum people, they think they're, they're just beginning and they say, oh, we're going to act like, we're going to act like the re guys and do whatever they want, okay? That everything breaks all the time. <laughs> It's people are really funny, you know? Yeah. So Jeff, what I'm hearing from that is that there's that shoe state where there's two parts that I've heard you describe. One is it's got to be about respect for people and a greater cause to build that motivation and to truly have the right approach to it. But then it's also about discipline to the process to really become slick and highly skilled at the process before you even start to think about looking outside of that, just really master the, master the process. And then from there, you get the next levels you spoke about. Yeah, I was talking to the, the University of Utah professor about, there's a book on how do people become great and uh, it requires 10,000 hours. Have you, have you heard about that? Yes, yes. You gotta get your 10,000 hours of focus, discipline in to become great in, at anything. And that's what a lot of people don't understand, that um, it really requires learning the basics, practicing a long time, focus, discipline. That's one of the challenges about Scrum. You know, Scrum is a lot more discipline than traditional project management, right? <laughs> yes. And people <laughs> and so hear the word I, agile and they think, oh, it's, it's just a free-for-all. Yeah. They don't realize well, the discipline behind there's a lot of agile developers that think agile means you can do whatever you want, right? Self-organization, that means, oh, we just do whatever, okay? Uh, but actually the whole concept of self-organization comes from complex adaptive systems theory. It's a smart system adjusting to achieve a goal. So these agile developers who think self-organization means whatever doing they want, their goal is to destroy the team and to destroy the process. And so somehow that needs to be fixed. With a, there needs to be leadership that can uh, educate these people, can train them, uh, can put them through, start them through their 10,000 hours they need to really know what, the, know what they're doing and be great, right? And do it with respect, like you said. Yeah. Jeff, would you say that we are better in today's world at that discipline and focus or worse than when you started your military career? I'd say it's more highly variable, right? Certainly in certain areas, like in the scrum world, we got Amazon putting out a new feature every second. And I know some of the Amazon executives have said at conferences, uh, today, we don't have time to focus on individuals. We hire teams. We, hire, we put them on probation. If in six weeks they don't perform at the level we expect, we fire the team, we hire a new team. So uh, 
the leadership and intensity is there. I'm, I'm not saying that that maybe is the best environment to work in, but it certainly sets a standard an expectation and a discipline so that they get results. And that's why, you know, when bad things happen like COVID, Amazon just makes more money. Yeah. <laughs> right. The for it. So that's what a lot of these agile developers need to realize that if they don't have discipline, companies like Amazon are just going to take over their business. And then when they try to get hired at Amazon, if they don't have discipline, they'll be, they'll be put back on the street. That's, that's life in the modern world because in certain areas we have extreme discipline, but generally uh, people are not well-trained um, and they don't, they don't get the kind of, they don't get, there's not as much rigor in our school systems. I don't know how it is in Australia, but certainly in the United States, this, it's much less rigorous in terms of education than it was in the past. Jeff, and, I met with a, a leading educator yesterday. He's going to come on the show soon. And she's got a school which is high discipline, but also high care. I'm hearing this in our conversation. I'm hearing two trends. I'm hearing yin and yang between respect and discipline. And yeah. I see this too with this educator, Dr. Lynn Bishop. And now she wants to implement agile into her school to be able to achieve higher performance, but still hold that like their, their purpose or their core values is love, learning, laughter. Yeah. But their approach, there is a high discipline approach to precision. And it's just interesting that she's now looking to your approaches to really help her school go to another yeah. level. Well, I don't know if you know about Edgescrum, which started in the Netherlands, but that is, was started in the high schools. Uh, and they use Scrum to, for all the teaching. The teacher is the product owner. The kid, product owner gives the kids a backlog. They have teams, daily meetings. They finish six weeks early in the semester. Their grades are 20 to 30% higher, and they have a whole bunch of fun and laughter and exactly what she's looking for. So we already have a working model for that in the schools. That is neat. Jeff, do you mind, do you mind describing, like if we move conscious of going in the right flow, but how do you then scale that? Do you mind just describing in that school, scaling then to the next level above the kids? Have you, have you got an example of that too? Well, one of the things that uh, the guy that started this was a chemistry teacher, but he was also a, an Aikido expert. He has his own dojo. So he's got some martial arts discipline. And his son worked at a company in the Netherlands where they were implementing Scrum. Actually, I, I had trained a lot of the people in that company. And his son, you know, told his father, you know, hey, you know, you should use this in the school. So he actually started it in his chemistry classes. And then he worked at expanding it in the school. And now he works full time for an organization that's actually promoting Edge Scrum around the world. So he's trying to scale it. And uh, some of our uh, scrumming trainers uh, are leaders in the Edge Scrum movement. There's two of our trainers in Germany that they are leaders in Edge Scrum in Germany, and they actually. Uh, 
try to use Edge of Scrum even in their training of you know the I, the people they train in companies. They they use an Edge of Scrum approach just like they would in the schools to actually do industrial training. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and it's starting at the heart of everything, isn't it? You're starting at educating children in how to have that love, care, respect, but also high discipline and performance, yeah. which I think they'll need coming into the world that they're going to have ahead of them. It's, it's not going yeah. to be straight down the line, is it? Well, it gives them a tremendous advantage. I, I mean, I, I, I've met with some business leaders in, in Amsterdam who say these kids coming out of the school where they do edge scrum are the best candidates for working in their companies. But they say, if, if we're not a scrum company, if they smell command and control, you know, <laughs> old style management, they won't even think about coming to work for us. They're extremely difficult to hire. So these kids, they know what they're doing. They know what they're about. They're not going to work for anybody that has this old style of thinking. And they're only going to help the best companies gets better. And this, this is one of the problems. We have this kind of diversion now. The best companies are getting better and the laggards are going bankrupt. That's what's happening in the world. Yeah, and it's, COVID has accelerated that. Uh, in the United States, there are over... 3,600 companies that have gone bankrupt in the last six months. And many of them are some of the biggest companies in America. And so COVID is cleaning out the waterfall. Okay. It's just devastating. And the economy in the United States has gone down like 40%. I think it's a bigger hit than the great depression. Uh, so, Anybody who's not agile, they're going to be toast. They are toasted already, most of them. Yeah. Jeff, you know what? If, do you mind if we take a back step now on it to, to talk about, for listeners that mightn't properly understand the evolution of Scrum and the concept of getting away from waterfall, like you yourself and Ken Schwaber played a big part in this. Like you, you guys connected and you went down this path and developed this approach. Do you mind just describing to the listeners, listeners the key elements of Scrum and Agile and that self-organizing teams and the, the key elements so people can get a clear understanding? Okay. Well, you know, the self-organizing teams for me started at West Point in 1964. Okay, that was the, that was the beginning, making work visible. And... And then the agile practices, that was all, fighter pilot training is agile practice. So I was thoroughly grounded in that. Then from fighter pilot training, my last tour, I was a professor of mathematics at the Air Force Academy and I wanted to continue a doctoral degree, which I did at the nearest medical school. Then I got, I, I was grant funded by the National Cancer Institute, uh, millions of dollars a year to do supercomputer modeling of the human cell. And there I learned how does a complex adaptive systems evolve and change? And it turns out that the changes that occur in a cell are similar to the changes that occur on a higher level in a human, which are similar to the, the changes that occur in the team, which are similar to changes in a company. So all the theory of that comes out of that medical school background. Now, I was hired away from the medical school to 
big banking company running 150 banks in 1983. And the, uh, I looked at the waterfall development they were doing. I was, I was shocked. I was horrified. Everything was always late. I couldn't believe anyone in their right mind would do this. They were using these gear charts, a tool developed before World War I, which has yet to be improved, okay? And as a mathematician, I did an analysis. If there are a thousand tasks, each one with a name and date, what is the probability that one of them causes the project to be late? And guess what that probability is? be crazy. 99.99999999%. So within, a, within about six weeks of being in the bank, I went into the CEO's office. I said, Ron, have you noticed all your projects are late? And he said, uh, yeah, every morning, at least five of the CIOs of the banks call me up. They scream at me, he says. I says, well, it's getting worse. The managers are having more meetings, more reports. They're making it later. So he says, well, what should I do? I said, well, I've been working with actually a team of business school professors. I had a grant from the university that the CEO allowed me to continue in the bank where I was working with uh, a leadership program funded by the Kellogg Foundation. I was spending a third of my time traveling all around the world. And part of my leadership group were business school professors. And it's because I was in the commercial sector, we were constantly talking about how do you make businesses better? So we had done a lot of brainstorming about this problem of old companies not being successful. And I said to the CEO, we need to create, we can't fix the whole bank at once. We need to create a little company within a company that has a different operating model. And, uh, and I said, we should take the worst business unit in the bank and start there. He agreed to do that. And within six months, it became the most profitable business unit in the bank. It was just like the, the marching team at West Point, you know, whoa. And that was the first prototype of Scrum at scale. Then I improved that model in a, about 10 different companies until I got to Easel in 1993. And there we were building tooling that needed to be used with a process we decided we'll name the process Scrum. We formalized it. It's essentially Scrum as it is today. And we ran it for two years and it was tremendously successful. Uh, benchmarked at 10 times waterfall speed. And so in 1995, I said, I wanna get this out into industry. And I have an old friend, Ken Schwaber, who's selling waterfall project management. So oh, I brought Ken was CEO of Advanced Development Methodologies, which sold this process with 300 three-ring binders and a Gantt chart program to all the big uh, consultancies, you know, the big eight consulting firms. So I said, I brought Ken in. I said, I want you to take a look at the Scrum because I think you should be selling Scrum. I want you to sell Scrum. I want to get this out of the company. And he spent two weeks embedded with the team. And he said, you're right. He says, this is pretty much the way I run my company anyway. If, he said, if I use Waterfall to run my company, I'd be bankrupt already. <laughs> I said, well, why don't you teach people to use, do something that actually works? And so in 1995, we agreed it would be open source. Uh, 
we would write a paper that we would publish at, I, I was running a workshop at Uppsala every year. And I said, I, I'm chair of the workshop. Let's write a paper. I will accept it. We'll bring it in. We'll, so it'll be the first paper, published paper on Scrum. And then Ken, and I, Ken started working with me as a consultant in my companies where we started to scale up Scrum. Uh, and by 2001, we showed up at the Agile Manifesto meeting. Ken and I and Mike Beadle, who was the first Scrum guy that implemented Scrum throughout his organization. Uh, four of the founders of Extreme Programming, actually in 1995, uh, Ken said, I had all the engineering practices that became XP inside the Scrum. And I was saying to Ken, we should make that part of the definition. He was like, no, he says, uh, if we do that, it will take too long to adopt. We should just take the, the team process itself and, uh, and focus on that, which we did. Uh, it was a good decision. And at the time, Kent Beck, the founder of XP, was asking me for everything on Scrum. So I, I sent Kent everything on Scrum. We let him focus on the, on the engineering practices. But then Ken and I and Kent show up at the Agile Manifesto meeting with a whole bunch of other consultants interested in this sort of thing. But Scrum and Extreme Programming were the only widely deployed practices with hundreds and hundreds of teams. And so really Scrum and Extreme Programming are the mother and father of the Agile Manifesto. And if you look at the Agile Manifesto and you go back to the 1983 implementation of Scrum at scale, it was based on a book called In Search of Excellence. And in there they have principles, which are virtually exactly the Agile Manifesto principles. So those ideas went, were, were available for 20 years before the Agile Manifesto meeting. And I had been implementing them every step of the way. Okay, so uh, the good thing about the Agile Manifesto is that it, it kind of struck a nerve particularly in the software community, and really caused massive change to occur. Um, so that's how, that's how Ken and I got together and uh, rolled out Scrum. Certainly did create change. Like you, you and I and our listeners know now what's occurred, but it's astronomical. Yeah, it's massive. Yeah. Could you have predicted it back then when you were involved in creating Scrum and then writing the Agile Manifesto. Did you know, did you predict what has happened and how big it has become? You know, Gartner Group just asked me to write up something, Gartner Research, because they're doing a, a research piece. And so I went back and I wrote up all the background and research into Scrum and the amount of money from my personal budgets that were invested the sum turned out to be $442 million, my personal budgets. Yeah. Not to mention billions and billions from other companies. Uh, now I said, the basic mechanics in the software domain, they were all uh, basic ideas in Bell Labs. And I was working with the inventor of the C language and the inventor of Unix at Bell Labs while I was in the medical school. I was using all their tools and technologies. And I learned small teams, you know, 
only one job title, no specialized job titles. Um, I learned all that from Bell Labs. This was known back in the 60s there, okay? Uh, so, and also we learned from Xerox PARC because uh, as we were starting to implement Scrum, it was a small talk team. Alex K at Xerox Park invented small talk. So we studied everything about Xerox Park. Well, at Xerox Park, they invented the personal computer. They invented Windows. They invented the use of the mouse. They invented Ethernet. And they invented the first laser printer. They invented everything, one team. And you know, we watched what they were doing and said, Okay, the one thing they didn't invent was a process to make all this work. So we're gonna use the thinking at Xerox Park to invent Scrum. We're gonna benchmark it with the leading productivity company in the world. And only when it goes 10 times faster than normal process, will it be ready for prime time. It has to be 10 times better because any Technical innovation has to be 10 times better to get adoptions. And one of the team members at Xerox Park, I'm going to show you this because she gave me, she said, Jeff, we need to have a repository for the key documents on the invention of the optical mouse wow. in the first in the first personal computer, okay? And Windows, a display-oriented user interface. And all the key, she says, I need somebody to keep these papers. Will you be the repository? So the Gardner guy was saying, Jeff, did you know this was gonna work? Are you kidding? We had the leading brains in the world help figure this out. There is no doubt it was gonna work. The only challenge was the marketing. Can we deploy it widely in the industry? And that's where I brought Ken in and we got it started in the late 90s. But the Agile Manifesto meeting was critical because it, it broadened the interest hugely and because Scrum works 10 times better than anything else, all of a sudden people said, wow, this works. It not only scales to multiple teams. And so now Scrum is almost 80% of what is Agile. You look at any survey, virtually all Agile is an implementation of Scrum, right? So there was no question it was gonna work. The only question was, can we deploy it globally? And so that was a thing we had to work on, but we, we already knew we had the product to, that, that could be successful. It was just a matter of executing the marketing strategy. Well, Jeff, thank you for formulating what Bell Labs and what Xerox was doing. And thank you for all the energy and effort that you've invested. Thank you for choosing to go open source. <laughs> you know, those key decisions that yourself and Ken and others have made to stay humble and target the greater good rather than your own personal back pocket. Yeah. That's made a 
played a big part in what has happened technologically and performance wise in our world over the last 20, 30 years. So thank you. Right. Well, we knew that in order to get really global deployment, it was, it was going to need to be open source. The same thing is true of Scrum at Scale today. You know, we have these proprietary IT frameworks, which can be helpful, but none of them are going to do what needs to be done and be able to be adopted by anyone, anywhere, in any, in any domain, in any part of any organization. Uh, it needs to be open source, needs to be free, it needs to be simple. And uh, that's what we're trying to do with Scrum at Scale. Yeah, what's, what's motivated you to be open source, to do so much effort on this, to share? What, what's been your personal driving force on this? What, what really drop, gets you up in the morning and goes, right, I'm going to go this again? I've been, okay, I've been really, really fortunate in life. I've had some extraordinary mentors. So I remember I, I was talking about the Kellogg Foundation and I was running around the world with these business school guys. But one of the places in the world we went to, we would go for a, a week or so at a time to look at big problems. And we spent, a, and one of our weeks was actually in Massachusetts, Cambridge area to look at technology. So during that week, I went to the MIT AI lab. Uh, Marvin Minsky, the, the God, one of the godfathers of AI, the other, there were two godfathers of AI. Uh, McCarthy, the inventor of LISP, when I was a student at Stanford, I was working in his lab. He was constantly complaining, you're using 10% of my computing power. You're just some graduate student using 10% of the compute power of the lab for, for writing this checkers program. I was writing checkers program so the computer would play its, against itself and get better and better. And it consumed huge amounts of computing resource. So I was beat up every day by the inventor of LISP one godfather of AI. And then years later, I show up, the other godfather of AI is Marvin Minsky. So we're in Marvin Minsky's lab and he's explaining what they're doing. And this guy sitting over in the corner has really long hair and smells of marijuana. So I go over, I said, what are you working on? He said, software has to be free, he says. I'm rewriting Unix, I'm rewriting C, I'm rewriting all the tools for software. They're all gonna be free, they're all gonna be open source. It's all about power to the people. I mean, he, he's like a fanatic. <laughs> this is the guy that started open source. <laughs> so I had experienced this 10 years before meeting with Ken, okay? So I knew all about open source what the thinking was, I learned it like from the founder of open source. That's what people don't realize. Scrum has been in the, Scrum has been invented by working with the founders of the great technology coming out of Bell Labs, the great technology coming out of Xerox PARC, the inventor of open source, the godfathers of AI. People have no comprehension of the invaluable mentorship that Scrum has had 
it's unbelievable. That's why I wanted to write this all down for the Gartner guy. I'm happy to send you a copy of this if you're interested. I'd, I'd uh, love it. And Jeff, I think you've got your next <laughs> book there too. Yeah, that that's yeah. This should be a book on that because yes. it is really amazing when you think of it. Um, but also too, Jeff, we are seriously going to look back on this era in history and go, wow. And what you've just described in this podcast, people are going to want to know about that because it's like, how did this all occur? Yeah. Yeah. And it's all about, you know, how did the first personal computer get invented? How did, uh, how did the, what happened that wound up with Apple, Microsoft, and Apple becoming the most valuable companies in the world. Where did, where did that come from, right? Yeah, that needs they're to be all documented. Scrub. They're all scrum companies. <laughs> uh, uh, the whole pattern side of trading that we do today, the patterns book we published in October, uh, co-authors Jim Copeland, who was at Bell Labs, one of the leading architects at Bell Labs, led the, the Bell Labs Pasteur project, which was case studies of hundreds of companies on what made them great, okay? That's where the patterns come from. So in, in our training, we're giving you the best knowledge from Xerox Park, from Bell Labs at its heyday, uh, from the greatest companies in the world today, what they're doing, uh, I mean, people always ask me, how come we're having trouble with Scrum? Where does Scrum fail? My response is, well, how come you're not doing Scrum like Microsoft? Or like Amazon? Or, or like Apple? You know, at Apple, they, they're, they're, they come to my class, Apple's very secretive about what they do. But people come in my class, they say, Jeff, do you know why Apple always meets the states? No, I don't know why. They said, we do Scrum by the book. I said, what book? They said, they said, this book, Scrum, the Art of Doing Twice the Work at Half the Time. Yeah. They're, that they're made pro- Apple a trillion dollar company. Why don't you do Scrum like Apple? They are disciplined. We know how to do it. There are great companies everywhere doing it. So the people that are not being successful is because they're not following the great companies who actually share a lot about how to do this well, you know? Jeff, I'm, what's going through my mind is that conversation you had on Shuha Ri again. They're not putting the time into the shoe and the respect. Yeah. yeah. Jeff, and what, what, one of the things that, uh, you know, we just published a case study on, on Quicken Loans, which we talked about in your class where Quicken Loans as one of the best safe implementations of the world. They're the only safe implementation where an organization has doubled their productivity, okay? Usually they get about 20%. They implemented Scrum at scale on top of safe and they got almost twice the work in half the time on top of the best safe implementation of the world. So we recently did a a webinar, with, uh, or actually it was kind of an internal webinar we did with the leader of, of Quicken Loans, the release train that, that 
is, is one of the most amazing reach chains in America. I mean, Quicken Loans is the biggest mortgage loan company in the United States, probably the world. And, and he was asked during COVID to start a program uh, for the state where they would help them build the system for testing and follow-up for uh, testing for COVID patients. And in one week, they had that up and running. He took his team, you know, his, his scrum at scale key team from Quicken, whoom. And people ask him, well, when you had to bring it up so fast, did you kind of give up the scrum discipline and just absolutely not, he said. These guys knew under pressure, you have to become more disciplined. You have to go right back to the basics. We did meticulous product backlog refinement, strong sprint planning, daily meeting, sprint retrospective, uh, sprint review, sprint retrospective. But he said we had to shorten the sprints. The sprints were only two and a half days. So more the greatest, you know, you'd have to say they're a re-level scrum, just like Amazon. Microsoft, maybe not re-level, but uh, an Apple. But when the pressure's on, they go right back to the discipline, doing the basics, extreme focus. And that's what the people that fail don't understand. You have to have the basic discipline. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. That's so insightful. Jeff, do you mind describing for our listeners Scrum and Scrum at scale, just an essence of the high-level process flow for them? Okay, well, Scrum as is a, a pro, an iterative process where you break work down into small pieces, you prioritize it by business value, then you feed it into a team, which is a small team, four or five people is the best, uh, and do it delivering in short intervals. Always less than a month. Today, a week is best. Quicken went to two and a half day sprints. For, their, for one that had to go really fast. And so that iterative, we want the end users to look at every iteration and give feedback. So it evolves a system really quickly. So that's basically Scrum. Scrum at scale is what, do you, what happens if you have 100 teams or 1,000 teams? And a few years ago, the leaders of Intel came to me and they said, Jeff, uh, we've tried some of these scaling frameworks at Intel and it actually slowed us down. You need to write down how to do this so that it actually really works. And uh, so I said, all right. So I started writing down what, what we've been doing for the last 20 years. And I, while I was doing it, I was talking to the biggest companies in the world. Like SAP has 2000 teams. They actually helped me write Scrum at Scale. They said, this is what needs to be in it to make it work for 2,000 teams. Uh, and at the time I was, I was at Amazon doing training and coaching the management at Amazon. Okay, so what did they do? Scrum at Scale has to work in that environment. Uh, Microsoft has thousands, all the development tooling, thousands, thousands of people. It's all done by Scrum. Uh, so, how do the companies that have hundreds and thousands of teams, how do they do that? So there's two key things I think 
you know, in, a, in like in 30 seconds, we can say, what is it that makes Scrum and Scale different? Number one, it has the absolute minimum viable bureaucracy so that the management doesn't slow you down. And number two, it has leadership, both operational leadership, we call it an executive action team that runs as a scrum and an executive meta scrum for prioritization that runs as a chief product owner team. And these guys are responsible and accountable for making the agile implementation work. And one of the things that Professor Card at Harvard has pointed out in his book, book Accelerate is that the agile part of the organization has to be run by agile leadership. And in every case where waterfall leadership has been responsible for the agile, long-term it has failed. So Scrum at Scale is really the only framework that focuses on that leadership component and getting them involved in the Scrum directly. It's not enough to have management buy-in. That's, that's, it's not gonna help you that much to have them say, oh, it's okay. You need them to participate in the Scrum. Then and only then does it actually work. And uh, so that I think that's a small snapshot of Scrum and Scrum at Scales. Anything I missed that you might think is important? No, I think for a high level, because my next question will probably help the next phase. What, what advice would you give to someone that wants to start to get involved in Scrum and Scrum at Scale? Or, a new leader yeah. or even an existing leader that is struggling at the moment. They're like, how do we navigate this crazy well, changing world? Yeah. Well, people are constantly sending me notes and email and on LinkedIn every day. I get multiple notes. How should I get started? Can you help me? First question I ask them, have you read the book? If they haven't read the book, there's no hope, right? Yeah. And that's they, the, the scrum book, the red book. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now that you've read the book, have you gone to a scrum training so that you actually learn this in more depth? If you haven't, then me sending you an email is not going to help that much. Now, once you've read the book, then you've gone to scrum training, now we can have an intelligent discussion. So then one of your questions was, how do we deal with the leadership? Scrum at scale has been especially created for leadership. You go into our Scrum at scale class, you're gonna get a bunch of uh, agile leaders or at the organizational level and a bunch of managers who are interested in, in and together in two days, we actually train them how to think about how to have an agile mindset, how to think about moving an organization. So when managers ask me, what should I do? I, I say, have you been to Scrum at Scale training? Well, no. Well, how do, you, how do you possibly think you're ever gonna implement this without getting really grounded in the basics? It's never gonna happen. So talk to me after you've been to Scrum at Scale. Now we can talk about, have an intelligent conversation about what you need. And then I can point to how to plug those, those needs so that you're successful. So one of my goals with Scrum Inc. is to write it all down, 
getting in all the training, <laughs> getting a training path for both executives as well as people on teams. And then once they understand that and now they have a problem, I can put them together with people that will help them solve that problem, right? That's and uh, so it's all logical, it's all laid out, it's all written down, it's all simple, <laughs> but <laughs> you have to have the discipline, you have to have the focus, you have to have the respect for people, you have to be open. So. Yeah, that, thank you, Jeff. It sounds to me like a lot of people want to jump to the re level. It's like, I just want to get to re. And it's like, yeah. no, you have to go yeah. through shoe yeah. for a long while, then go to ha, then you can get to re. I want to be an eighth degree black belt in martial arts tomorrow. I studied under an eighth degree black belt. He was fond of having multiple people attack him, at least three. And that guy was so powerful he would just wave his fingers like this. And those guys coming at him would be thrown across the room, six feet in the air. They bounce off the walls. And it felt in the room like, you know, when, when a big Mack truck goes by, you get this big whoop. And the first time that happened, I'm sitting there watching, whoop. What happened? The guy didn't even touch anybody, anybody, and the room just reverberated. These guys are flying across the, in the air, hitting the wall. And the black belt side of me says, that's the chi power, the chi. The intangible energy that is embedded in the body of the master. Now, how some junior developer thinks he's going to get there tomorrow. His mentality is so far from reality. I don't know. What are we going to do? Yeah, there's a lot of effort, a lot of energy to even get through the shoe phase, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And you start with the basics. We know like the best people in the world doing scrum when they have to go really fast, they make sure the basis, basics are locked down tight. So a lot of these people that are struggling with Scrum, they don't even have the basics implemented. Like um, you saw in the heat maps that we did on the wall for, for you know, yeah. how many companies do we have? Uh, quite a few. <laughs> no, Jeff, I, I can vouch. Doing? Well, not very good for most of them, right? Yeah, Jeff, I can really vouch for the training and vouch for the insights that I gained. Like it, it was amazing. Jeff, the final question I've got is, is there anything that you've learned in the last two years that really, or the last few years that really shifted your thinking? Like you, you have been through a career of learning and sharing, but what's come up in recent times that has been new for you or a new insight? Well, I think the biggest, uh, the biggest insight is uh, struggling with all these scrum teams failing. The data shows that a lot of them fail. What is the reason for that? Number one, Scrum is a term that was applied to lean hardware manufacturing teams. If the Scrum is not lean, it will not be, it might not fail, but it will not be good. Second, 
there are certain patterns of play that we call the high productive scrum patterns. If people are not implementing that, they will never be great. And third, once you have more than one scrum team, which uh, most people have now, they have more than one scrum team, unless you have a minimum viable bureaucracy, that organizational implementation is gonna stumble. So I'm saying now everywhere in my training, it's not just what Scrum is, it's about a lean implementation of Scrum based on the hyperproductive patterns that actually scales with a minimum viable bureaucracy. And I have people right now asking me to co-author books and they've written a great book on Scrum. I said, if it doesn't have lean patterns of Scrum at scale in there, I'm not interested, I will not be a co-author, I will not write a forward unless you change that book because you're setting people up for failure. It's like you're giving them the rule book for soccer, but you're not telling them how to play the game. So, I mean, I think that's the biggest insight. And that's one of the reasons I've launched not only Scrum at Scale trainer program, but a Scrum global Scrum, Scrum and product order training program so that we can get people teaching Scrum in a way that actually works, okay? And so that's my, my energy is totally focused on that right now, fixing the broken Scrum. Jeff, thank you. Like, thank you for everything you've done throughout your career and for open source and the humbleness with which you and Ken and everyone else who's been involved in the journey has done because it's, man, it's created an, an amazing outcome for our world. And thank you for the energy you're throwing into it going forward to really help take it to a new level. Well, thanks for inviting me to talk with you. Good to see you again after uh, last week, the week before. And uh, particularly fond of Australia. I hope next time I get there, I get up to Brisbane. Oh, please do. Let me know. We can, we can go and check out that good dairy. Um, for listeners, Jeff and I both have a history of dairy farming back in our past. And there's a place near Brisbane called Mullaney where they make the most amazing milk and cream still. So we'll, we'll get up there and check out Mullaney. Great. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Good talking to you.